On a dangerous sea coast, notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude little life-saving station. Actually, the station was merely a hut with only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the turbulent seas. With little thought for themselves, they would go out day and night, tirelessly searching for those in danger as well as the lost. Many, many lives were saved by this brave band of people who faithfully work as a team in and out of the life-saving station. By and by, it became a famous place. Some of those who had been saved, as well as others along the seacoast, wanted to become associated with this little station. They were willing to give their time and energy and money in support of his objectives. New boats were purchased. New crews were trained. The station that was once obscure and crude and virtually insignificant began to grow. Some of its members were unhappy, though, that the hut was so unattractive and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided. Emergency cots were replaced with lovely furniture. Rough handmade equipment was discarded and sophisticated, classy systems were installed. The hut, of course, had to be torn down to make room for all the additional equipment, furniture, systems, and appointments. By its completion, the life-saving station had become a popular gathering place and its objectives had begun to shift. It was now used as sort of a clubhouse and an attractive building for public gatherings, saving lives, feeding the hungry, strengthening the fearful, and calming the disturbed. Rarely occurred now. Fewer members were now interested in braving the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired professional lifeboat crews to do this work. Now, shipwrecks still occurred in those waters, but now most of the victims are not saved. Every day they drown at sea, and so few seem to care. So few. This is a little modern-day parable written by a guy named Chuck Swindoll, and at the end of this parable he says, you know, he asks the question, do you care? Do you care? For those of you who grew up in church or have a church background, you can kind of already see where we're going. If you're someone who hasn't figured out whether you believe everything you heard about Jesus in the Bible, it seems a little obscure. Why are we opening up with a story like this? But we'll talk a little bit about this idea of why mentioning a life-saving station is something that's uh, important for us. Over the years, we've strategically taken time each year to use our Sunday gatherings to reorient our focus on our mission, vision, and values. It's something we do every single year. The heart of this series that we're in, that we started last week, is to follow that pattern. And if today's your first time with us, or maybe your first time in a while, last week we took a break from our study. As some of you know, we've been in the book of what? Acts. We've been in the book of Acts. And so we took a a break to begin a teaching series with the hopes of answering this simple question, is this question, what is clarity all about? Like, what is clarity all about? If you missed last week's message, I encourage you to listen in on that message, by the way. Uh, you can find the messages and past messages uh, when you visit claritychurch.org forward slash messages. You can also find, we got this new app. We're still trying to figure out how to use it. 
And uh, now we, I think we've got it, and you can, you can actually go into the app, and there's a little thing called Messages, and you click on that, and you can listen to the messages there. But uh, I encourage you to listen to it. Those of you who maybe are part of our communities have an added bonus. If you did not know this, if you're not signed up for our communities, you don't know this, but every week uh, we upload the raw notes for whoever's speaking with footnotes and um, uh, little, you know, cross-references. And so a lot of times you're like, oh, where'd that quote come from? You'll, you'll find them embedded in, in the notes. We, we cite everything, you know, because everyone and their brother is trying to, I don't know, fire pastors for so-called plagiarism. And I'm like, well, I don't know who every pastor, every good pastor plagiarizes some good person because Jesus preached the gospel and we probably shouldn't be preaching anything else. But anyways, that's beside the point. I don't want to belabor that. But, but you know, just for out of full transparency, we, we cite it all, right? <laughs> but you can find that out. So anyways, go to the message, listen to it, or you can read it if you're not someone who listens. But back to the question, what is clarity all about? In short, clarity is a calling, a movement, a means. A calling, a movement, a means. A calling, a movement, a means. If you were with us last week, or if you did view the message online, we explored what it means to pursue gospel clarity. You'll remember that the first question any church must answer before really understanding what is it that God is calling them to is this question. It's the first question, really, which is, what is the gospel? And today we're going to explore what it means when we say clarity is a movement. But before we dive into that, I I want to restate just one thing I said last week regarding clarity's calling. And if I could be audacious, I would maybe say, I would think most churches believe this too. But it's this, pursuing gospel clarity in our lives means that we believe in and preach the reality of the gospel first and foremost, to ourselves every day and in every circumstance in our life. Pursuing gospel clarity in our lives means that we believe in and we preach the reality. If you don't like that, we receive it, we believe it, we let it transform and be the lens by which we make our everyday decisions. We preach the God, we allow it to confront the idols of our hearts or the ways in which the lies of Satan speak a false gospel. We, again, we talked about this last week. You'll have to take a look at that message. But pursuing gospel clarity in our lives means that we believe in and preach the reality of the gospel to ourselves every day and in every circumstance in our lives. And I can't state this enough, so please, please hear me. If Clarity Church is not made up of people who believe the gospel and who preach the gospel to themselves, we will never be the kind of life-changing station God has called, I believe, His church, Big C. That's for you, right? Big C. Big C for us to be. We will never be that. And so, the church has a calling that first begins with being a people who are deeply transformed by the gospel. I, I, I can't overstate that enough. Like, <laughs> like a, a local church is made up of people who are deeply transformed by the gospel. Otherwise, any type of organization with some type of vision and mission and gathering, 
it, it, is, it is not really just the church. It's just a club. It's not a life-saving station. It is some type of erected monument and veneration of the power of God in the past that we really have no vision for the future and if we were honest with ourselves are not practicing any habits by which it will be accomplished in and through our lives today. And so being transformed by the gospel means that when we commit to increasingly submit all of life to Jesus as master and savior, God invites us and welcomes us to become, as we know, sons and daughters in the family of God. Second Corinthians 6, 18 tells us this. So it also means that God has given us a new identity. We touched on this a little bit last week. And he's given us an identity, not only as sons and daughters, but here's a cool thing. Did you know that your citizenship, your primary, if you're a follower of Jesus, your primary citizenship is, is, do you know where it's at? Do you know where it's at? It's in heaven, right? And that means we're part of a new nation. In other words, followers of Jesus are people who find their identity not as citizens of some type of earthly establishment, but first and foremost and overwhelmingly in opposition to any earthly kingdom. We belong to the kingdom of heaven. And that is not only good news because it's a promise of life eternal with God, but it's also good news because when we live out the realities of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, we literally, uh, uh, Paul says that we are ambassadors. In other words, we carry with us not only just citizenship, but we carry values. We carry a message. We carry a way of living that if together, we do together, can change. A neighborhood, your home, a city, your work, a school. It can change the circles of influences around us. You know, when you look at the culture in which Jesus came to earth, it was a culture built around religion, right? And specifically, origin, a religion based on, uh, as, as we like to say, sacred temples, We've been going through the book of Acts, and everywhere he goes, there are synagogues, but then also, consequently, in these Gentile areas, there are these establishments, these temples. And we were in the, we, we talked about one temple to Adelphi, right? So the ancient world was very, very much keen into this idea of religiosity. And the temple, whether it was the Jewish temple or it was the Greek temple, was where if you ask the normal religious person, they would say something like this, the, the gods or God dwelt there, right? And if you wanted to connect with God or the gods, you had to go to the temple. And there was a sacred process you needed to follow and there were sacred people, men or women who would you know, you couldn't really get to God yourself, and so they would, they would mediate that. And Jesus, what was interesting about Jesus was that he wanted his disciples to understand that he was ushering in a new way of doing things. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that he didn't come to start a new religion, 
He came to put an end to the idea that religious living equals holiness, that religious living equals salvation, that religious living equals a restored relationship between you and your heavenly father. And what he was asking them to do wasn't simply to create a new religion with a new sacred building that would compete with the old one. Instead, Jesus came to usher in a brand new way of living, a way in which every person could connect with God without sacred buildings or burnt offerings or cutting or whatever they used to do back in the day, sacrificing their firstborn, all that kind of crazy stuff. And I think sometimes if we forget, because in the modern world, right, like our modern secularism isn't asking you to sacrifice your firstborn kid. <laughs> but, you know, maybe it's asking you to sacrifice some other things that we hold dear, like your 401k, maybe that pursuit of your kid that you think is going to make D1, like, but really they're not. But you kind of you kind of live your life running around really crazy, and it's nice because you thought you were going to go D one, and maybe your kid, right? So it, it doesn't maybe feel like sacrificing your kid, but we're sacrificing. The culture is asking us to sacrifice some things, and the gospel is good news because it says we are no longer defined by what we accomplish; we are defined what God through Jesus has accomplished if by faith. We accept it, we receive it, we believe in it, and we allow God to transform us by it. That's good news. And so Jesus is walking and talking with the disciples, and uh, in Matthew chapter 16, we find that these disciples are beginning to talk about the impact that Jesus is having around them. And then Jesus asks them this question. He says this in, in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 15, it says this, uh, Jesus goes, hey, why do, who do people say the Son of Man is? Do you remember, if, you, if you read the Bible, you remember this, this conversation. Jesus says, hey, hey guys, who do people say the Son of Man is? Verse 14, they say, well, the disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, okay. But who do you say I am? Like, Jesus was like, okay, that's interesting to hear. But what about you guys? Like, what do you think? Like, what do you believe about who I am? And of course, as usual, the one with the biggest mouth spoke first, Simon Peter. <laughs> I got this, guys. <laughs> Jesus, I know the answer. I, I just, I love, I pick on Peter a lot, but uh, I love Peter as well. But it probably went down like, in my mind, this is how it went down. Who do you say I am? And everyone's like, Ooh. oh. Peter's like, guys, I got this. <clears throat> Jesus, you are the Messiah, son of the living God. Now, if you've ever heard this story before, if you grew up in church, it's easy to read this and not really be intrigued by 
this or impacted by this. I mean, how many of you have heard this idea? Like, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus, even if as I say that right now, Jesus is the Son of God, no one's going, amen, hallelujah. First of all, we're a Baptist church, so nobody kind of does that here. But, you know, like, we, like, I say Jesus is the Son of God. No one's going, yes, amen, right? Praise the Lord. No one's saying that. And it's easy to hear this idea that Jesus is the Son of God and not be intrigued by it. But think about it from a first century perspective. Just put, let's, let's just put a, a, let's try to put a first century perspective on what's going on here. And, and, and I think you'll quickly see how often people undervalue what is happening here. Remember I said, everyone has different gods. It's the culture in which there's many gods. There were subjects, for instance, of the Roman Empire. For example, Julius Caesar had died with the title the divine Julius. And that just sounds weird, right? Like, why would we call anybody God? This was the cult. Like, this was normal. Like, like, like humans walking the earth, like, oh, it's like a God. That's why we have phrases like, oh, they have such a God complex. Because there were literal people who walked the earth who thought they were gods. And then there were people who, who followed them that were, <laughs> who thought they were God. And then he had to his adopted son by the name of Octavian, his successor. And Octavian was also known as Caesar Augustus. And he was often called the son of the divine, a.k.a. the son of, guess what? God. So take that into context. And here Peter is saying, look, I'm not sure what everyone else thinks, but I believe that you are a true son of the living God. And it's an incredible statement. And Jesus says that based, and, 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 and here's what Jesus says based on that confession in verse 18. A little later, you know, so Peter says, like, I believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so what does Jesus have to say in reply to that? Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He, said, he looks at him and he goes, hey, listen, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Others translate say, will not overcome it. Now again, this is where this gets very, very interesting. The word Jesus uses here is the Greek word ekklesia. Some of you might know this if you're Bible nerds, okay? Don't, don't nod too quickly, otherwise you will out yourself. <laughs> but the word ekklesia is comprised of two Greek words. And I'm like, oh, here we go. We're talking about Greek words. But listen up. This is actually really interesting. Check this out. It's comprised of two Greek words, the first word being ek, which is a word that Jesus used when he said this in John 6, 38. For I have come down or out of or ek from heaven. I have come ek from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So there is this idea that this coming out was to do a specific thing that God had required, right? I'm coming, I'm coming out. That's the only thing I can think of, right? So that's what that, that helps you remember. And then the second word, ekklesia, ekklesia is, is, is kind of a, a variation of the word kaleo, which is a word that Jesus used when he said this in Luke 5.32. I have not come to call or kaleo the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So, check this out. 
I know it's not interesting, but I just find this interesting. And you have to sit there and listen to what I thought found interesting this week. So listen, here it goes. When formed together, ekaleo, it was a Greek word used by the general public to, uh, general public and, you know, not Christians. Just in general, it was a Greek word that defined a gathering of usually citizens called out for their homes into some public place, into an assembly for some type of purpose. Okay? Ekaleo. Just like, oh, they're, they're called out of their homes. Now they're gathered together and a specific thing is going to be done. Now, when this verse, by the way, was translated by the Roman Catholic Church in the early centuries, um, one of the ways, again, this might be conspiracy theory, but it definitely happened. One of the things that happened was they translated this word, ecclesia, to kirche, which is where we get the word church. I probably butchered that because it's German. But it, it, it ended up being this idea, church. That's why you're like, how did we get church out of ecclesia? Like, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's because of how we translated the word church. And some believe in an effort to shift the focus from the gathering of the people to sacred places. This translation from a word which alluded to this idea of a people, of a movement, of a gathering, of a purpose, to a German word that literally referred to a place, and which is why you hear people say, hey, let's go to church, right? Which I don't let my kids say, and they hate it, because I'm like, you can't go to church any more than you can go to family. You could be with family, but you can't go to family. You could be with family. Family is a people, and so think about this. Jesus basically this said, said this. Look, he said, hey guys, I'm the son of God and I have come here to show you that I will build a gathering of people. I'm doing right now. You don't know it yet. Peter, by the way, thanks for saying I'm the son of God. You don't even know what's coming. <laughs> You're going to preach 3,000. Oh, he didn't say that. But in his mind, I can imagine like Peter doesn't even know. And, and I'm going to do it. And I'm gonna, and, and people are gonna be called out of the world for a purpose. And around that concept, this idea of the gospel and this way of living, I'm building the church. And not even the gates of hell will be able to stop it. And Peter, someday, you're gonna die. And the gathering of people will continue to grow. And the next generation is going to connect with God through the power of the gospel. And through transformed lives, I will transform the world because the life-changing work of the power of the gospel has been entrusted to a movement of people who have repurposed their rhythms around helping those disconnected from God experience the power of the gospel with clarity. This is why we believe that the church is not a place or a service. The church is a people. And a local church is a fellowship of believers in a specific location called by God to make disciples that make disciples that makes disciples everywhere they go with everyone they meet every day that they live. 
You know, back in the fall of 2013, a small group of people helped us launch our intention of starting a new church here in the West Twin Cities. And I say, you were here, you were here, you weren't, you, no, I, okay, All right? So a small group here. You were with us in heart. Sorry, you acted very offended there. My bad. <laughs> And some of you remember on, on September 29th, uh, September 29th, 2013, uh, we filled a gym like this. Well, with the walls already down, you know, we had like 230 people there. It was, it was electric. It's like awesome. Yeah, most of them are friends. <laughs> but within the first few months, right, we were averaging about 120 people a week. And I just felt good. Like, oh, yeah. And before the new year would come, you know, 21 people would make commitments to follow Jesus. And over the years, we baptized dozens of people. And, and I don't say this to kind of like brag or try to make us feel good or whatever, whatnot. But yeah, and, and, and by the way, I'm certainly not saying that I felt like starting a new church meant that existing churches weren't doing a good job of reaching people for Jesus. Now, are there some churches that might not? Of course. But in general, we did not start clarity out of this idea like, oh, nobody, nobody is being the church and we need to start something new because, you know, all the other churches are churches for perfect people. And we're, you know, like, we're, I mean, like, like we didn't, we didn't have that premonition. In fact, in the early days when we talked about this, we, we said we wanted very much to present ourselves, even in the community, among other churches, to help them understand, like, <laughs> we're not, we're not any different. We're just new. We're a new light in the city. Some of you remember that. It was on our shirts. A new light in the city and all that kind of stuff, right? And, 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 and to help you understand that, it, I often, I, I've heard this week, I was telling Danielle this, just like no good parent decides to have a new baby because they think all other babies are not that good, <laughs> no good person works to start a new church because they are motivated to do church better. I believe that with all my heart. Because if you start a new church because you think all the churches are not good, well, then you're about as arrogant as a parent who says, I'm going to have kids because no other kids are good. And if you've had kids and you did really think that, you learned pretty quickly, like, oh, no, my kid's bad too. My kid's bad too. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, forgive me. I'm sorry. <laughs> right? And new churches should be started with this simple goal in mind to see more and more people come to know Jesus, believe in Jesus, place their faith and trust in Jesus. And our hope in starting Clarity was to call out and to gather a group of people interested in engaging in the work of seeing more and more people come to know Jesus, believe in Jesus, place their faith and trust in Jesus. And there's nothing in the history of the church that consistently contributes to the numerical growth of the body of Christ in a city, or as Dr. Tim Keller is often quoted having said this, nothing else not crusades, outreach programs, parachurch ministries, growing megachurches, congregational consulting, nor church renewal processes will have the consistent impact of dynamic, extensive church planting. This is an eyebrow-raising statement, but to those who have done any study at all, that's a little dig that he says. <laughs> Basically, if you're not an idiot, it is not even controversial. So, 
But that said, clarity, I believe, should be if we aren't. But I think we are. A movement of people committed to being a part of what Jesus proclaimed some 2,000 years ago when he told Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is the one who builds his church that hell will not prevail against. By the way, it's a church that Jesus builds, not a person. In our highly individualistic culture, that could seem a little off-putting to some. But I want to remind you that God, through Jesus, has a plan of building a church not just you. <laughs> and you're special. Granted. Okay? Who are you saying I'm not special, Phil? No, you're special. But the church is even more special. That's why it's called the bride. And this is because the vision of God to rescue and restore people to a right relationship with Him has never been about one person. It's been about a people who carry on the message of the gospel. And if the church is not a building or a service, but a people, then I find it interesting that if the church is a people, listen to this, the mission is also, guess what? People. So next week, we'll talk more about our vision for the future and the means or the way or the how by which I believe God wants to use this local fellowship of believers to be disciples that make disciples. But today, I wanted just to concentrate on this theme and have us wrestle. I don't know if you've wrestled with this. I, I know I don't. I, unless, I mean, I do because, well, my vocation is, is, is kind of to think about this stuff. So it's not fair like for me to say, like, I think about this and why aren't you all thinking about this? <laughs> well, you know, I, I have to study this throughout the week. But I think if I was like you, if I was you, I wouldn't think about this. I would, I'd be worried about my kid who's throwing up or, you know, and, 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 uh, or like, is my kid going to catch COVID at school? And I, I'd be worried about, you know, I'd, I'd be thinking about like, oh, I got my deadlines. I got this. I got that. We got to take all the kids. We got all the kids. We're running them everywhere. I would be just like you. And nowhere in my thought would be, I wonder, I wonder if I'm actively engaged in the ecclesia. God promised to build. I wonder. Like no one gets out of bed and goes, oh, I am part of the ecclesia. Yes. Right? Nobody wakes up to that. I get that. Like I'm not trying to say you should, but I'm just saying in this moment right here, right now, before we jump in to the rest of our lives to watch some more football or do whatever we're going to do, enjoy the last 90 degree day of Probably the rest of our lives in Minnesota. No, I'm teasing. That's what it's going to feel like. Trust me. It's going to feel like, it's never going to come. It's getting so cold here. Before you jump into that day, I just want us to pause and go, what does it mean for my life to be part of this church that God is building that even the gates of hell will not prevail against? And so, as we close, I just want to invite us 
really to do two things. First, I'd be honored. You don't have to. I'm not telling you like you have to do this. Because I know there's some of you out there are, are just stubborn enough to be like, oh, you can't tell me what to do. Okay, I'm not telling you what to do. But I'm saying like it might be a good idea if you say you follow Jesus. Do you believe in prayer? Okay, yeah, okay, we're okay. How about you pray? And here's what I'd love for us to pray about. To pray about how God would want you, how God would want me. Not well, you could pray how God would want me, but like you know, I'm saying me, like myself, like I would pray that like God, how would you want me to either increase or engage for the first time? Or maybe it's engaged for the first time in a long time because, well, COVID. In repurposing our rhythms to be a part of a movement that Jesus called the ecclesia, the church. And I know this sounds a little weird, like, well, I'm a Christian. I'm part of the ecclesia. Well, the ecclesia is a movement. And if you're not moving, you're not with it. Are you saying I'm going to hell? I didn't say that. I'm just saying that by your own choices, you may not be part of the ecclesia. And that's something we could discuss more, maybe over coffee, like I don't get what you're saying, but it's just something to consider. How would God want me to increasingly grow in how I participate in what is his mission to reach the world with the gospel through his church. I think we can all agree on that. God has called his church to reach the world with the gospel. Can we agree on that? Can we agree on that? Yes. Because if we don't agree on that, then really, we're going to be, it's going to be a really awkward relationship between you and me. Can we all agree on that? Right. Okay, good. So then, would you prayerfully consider, like, what does that mean? For me. And second, and probably really the most important, I would hope that as we close today and we'll have some time as we worship together, and then even as you go home, I hope you would take the time to remind yourself of the kind of love God has for those that the church is supposed to exist for. Those disconnected from God. Jesus called them the lost. Luke 19.10, He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost.